This week, Pier 1 files for Chapter 11. Sycamore to buy 55% of Victoria's Secret from L Brand. Energy companies engage in exchanges to address maturity walls. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Later this episode, two of our regular anchors, Alex Brosman and Karen Lung, will put their lawyer hats on and dig deep into the Windstream Unity master lease dispute. It's Sunday, February 23rd. Pier 1 Imports Incorporated, along with several affiliates, filed for Chapter 11 protection in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Eastern District of Virginia. The company is also pursuing concurrent proceedings in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice under the Company's Creditors Arrangement Act, or CCAA. The debtors seek to pursue a dual-track sale and plan support process, having entered into a plan support agreement on February 16th with holders of approximately 63.8% of the principal amount of the pre-petition term loan. The PSA contemplates that the consenting term lenders and the debtors would negotiate and file a, quote, all-weather plan by Monday, February 24th, to be confirmed in approximately 66 days. With less than $11.1 million of cash on hand, the debtors enter Chapter 11 with, quote, firm commitments for approximately $256 million of dip financing from Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Pathlight Capital, including refinancing in full the pre-petition ABL facility, which the debtors say is, quote, likely oversecured. The consenting term lenders have agreed that, if the debtors receive a qualified bid greater than or equal to a reserve price, which when taking into account the claims estimation would result in a recovery of $0.55 on the dollar on account of the term loan claims, the consenting term lenders would consent to and support the sale of the debtor's assets, including a release and discharge of liens, encumbrances, and interests, subject to receipt of proceeds. However, if no qualified bid's value exceeds that reserve price, consenting term lenders would elect to either pursue an equitization restructuring pursuant to the Chapter 11 plan, or to proceed with an auction at which the consenting term lenders may only credit bid up to the reserve price. Pier 1 intends to use the bankruptcy process to complete the previously announced closure of up to 450 store locations, which includes the closure of all stores in Canada. The company initiated store closings at approximately 270 locations, including 169 where clearance sales have been conducted around January 10th. The debtors say that they intend to close 56 stores in Canada and an additional U.S. store within the next few days. The store closing sales are expected to generate $177 million in proceeds, and all sales at the initial store closings would end by March 31st. Gordon Brothers would manage all store closing operations, and the company says it expects to conclude all closings and exit the leases by the end of March. L Brands and Sycamore Partners announced a strategic transaction in which Sycamore will purchase a 55% interest in Victoria's Secret for $525 million. In total, and including certain liabilities, the transaction implies a Victoria's Secret enterprise value of $1.1 billion. L Brands will retain a 45% stake in Victoria's Secret and will use proceeds from the transaction, along with approximately $500 million in excess balance sheet cash, to reduce debt. The company said it expects that its overall leverage on an adjusted debt-to-EBITDA basis will be close to its current leverage ratio. 
In an investor presentation, L Brands detailed the rationale for the transaction, saying that selling a 55% stake in Victoria's Secret will allow standalone Bath & Body Works to remove, quote, significant amounts of debt and lease obligations from its balance sheet. Including $2.5 billion in Victoria's Secret lease obligations, the company estimates a $3.5 billion reduction in standalone Bath & Body Works adjusted debt as a result of the transaction. In addition, the presentation includes standalone financials for each of the two businesses. The company estimates Bath & Body Works 2019 EBITDA of $1.327 billion, while Victoria's Secret EBITDA for 2019 is estimated at $485 million. Intelsat said this week that it, quote, should properly be apportioned between 60 and 67% of the total of all acceleration payments paid out under the C-band transition. That's rather than the 50% provided for under the Federal Communication Commission's proposal. 50%, the company argued in a letter to the FCC, quote, does not accurately reflect Incelsat's share of the contribution to clearing C-band services to the contiguous 48 states. Intelsat, the company said, would be responsible for transitioning 67.53% of antennas. In addition, Intelsat said its share of C-band transponder usage based on fleet usage in the contiguous 48 states is about 67%. Earlier in the week, David Tepper's hedge fund, Appaloosa LP, owner of approximately 7.4% of Intelsat's common stock, sent a letter to the board of directors urging the company to withhold acceptance of the FCC's order detailing the FCC's approach to clearing C-band spectrum in an upcoming auction until, quote, fair commercial terms could be negotiated. In the letter, Tepper delineated three provisions of the recently announced proposal from the FCC to clear an auction C-band spectrum currently licensed to Intelsat and other satellite operas that he deemed to be, quote, onerous and, quote, egregious. Also, SES, another member of the three-party C-band alliance, which includes Intelsat, strongly criticized Intelsat's request for a greater share of the acceleration payments in its own letter to the FCC. SES said that while it supports Chairman Ajapai's proposal, quote, Undisputed facts conclusively show that Intelsat and SES deserve equal shares of any accelerated relocation payments. SES provided a report commissioned by the C-Band Alliance and prepared by the accounting firm RSM, which determined, based on the satellite operator's 2017 C-Band revenue and their clearing cost arrangement, how much each member was due in a hypothetical C-Band auction. Quote, Nevertheless, Intelsat now disregards the RSM report and its prior commitments, and instead claims for the first time that it should be apportioned between 60 and 67% of all acceleration payments, SES argued. SES also said that Intelsat could not unilaterally dissolve the CBA and said it would hold Intelsat to its legal commitments. Intelsat also reported fourth quarter earnings last week. On the call, CEO David Tolley said the company has, quote, ample liquidity to address its 2021 Luxembourg notes maturity, but stated that the company would, quote, wait for the final C-band order, quote, and then assess what next steps might be for the capital structure, if any. It was an unusually quiet week as it relates to Puerto Rico. Therefore, in lieu of our usual update, we'll provide a little color before turning to some energy news. According to a survey of sources by Reorg, several parties are not on board with the new plan support agreement the PROMISA Oversight Board reached with holders of general obligation and the PBA bonds. Opponents of the pact include the Commonwealth Government, as well as Monoline Insurers AMBAC, Assured Guarantee, National Public Finance Guarantee, and Financial Guarantee Insurance Co., which collectively represent $12.2 billion of current exposure.
turning to energy, as the industry grapples with volatile commodity prices and uncertainties surrounding the impact of the coronavirus epidemic on global growth, energy companies are seeking to extend their runways through debt exchanges. California Resources on February 20th announced an exchange offer for its 8% senior secured second lien notes due 2022, 5.5% senior notes due 2021, and 6% senior notes due 2024, in exchange for an option to receive either A, up to $113 million of secured notes at a newly created royalty entity, Elk Hills Royal Co., 48.8% of equity in that new entity, and $162 million in cash, which must be used by tendering note holders to purchase new royalty notes. B. Up to $429 million in new term loans, common stock warrants for 12.9% of the company's shares, and $25 million in cash, which must be used by tendering note holders to purchase new term loans, or... C, a combination of A and B. This followed an exchange offer from Hornbeck Offshore announced on February 14th for its 5 and 7 8 senior notes due 2020 and 5% senior notes due 2021 for a combination of newly issued 10% senior notes due 2023, 5.5% senior notes due 2025, and a private offer to purchase for cash up to $66.7 million in aggregate principal amount of the existing 2020 and 2021 notes. The transaction has the support of a supermajority of 2020 and 2021 bondholders and shareholders, the company said. Hornbeck also plans, upon consummation of the exchange, to contribute certain vessels and related assets to one or more unrestricted subsidiaries that are not subject to most of the restrictions under the indentures governing the new notes or the company's existing credit facilities. Hornbeck and certain supporting note holders have agreed to pursue in good faith a senior secured loan in a principal amount of not less than $200 million, the proceeds of which are intended to fund the acquisition of certain assets. Lastly, Whiting Petroleum has been pitched on liability management options by firms including Perilla Weinberg, Jefferies and Mollison Company. According to sources, as the back-and-focused ENP faces more than $1 billion of unsecured maturities through 2021. Whiting's unsecured notes due 2021 last traded at 77, according to Trace, down from about 95 as of year-end, amid relentless volatility in commodity prices, with WTI having fallen nearly 18% in the past six weeks, driven in part by concerns that the coronavirus epidemic will crimp global growth. Whiting Petroleum has not been awarded a mandate, according to sources. Other sources suggest that a secured bond deal may be in the offing for the Denver-based ENP, whose third quarter reported adjusted EBITDAs dropped about 32% year-over-year to $229.1 million. Other top stories last week were VIP Cinema Petition references DIP and RSA without providing further detail. Oak Tree's $45 million second lien term loan, largest unsecured claim listed. Bombardier agrees to sell transportation business to Alstom in $8.2 billion transaction. Valeris's potential post-internal reorganization options could include secured debt issuance, capital distribution from AROJV. Asset drops to unrestricted subsidiary might circumvent indenture liens limitations. Next is our favorite, Jim Holloway, with the week ahead. 
Well, thank you, Rockshin. Good morning, everyone. Busy week this week, most of it of the quarterly earnings variety, so let's get to it. Monday, February 24th, we have the final dip hearing from McDermott and a UCC formation meeting in Murray, while Murray, well, excuse me, Hertz reports its fourth quarter results after the close. Tuesday, February 25th, PG&E from the great state of California, the CPUC plan approval evidentiary hearing commences. That should be fun. And on the earnings front, there is Malincrote Realogy, Denberry, MoneyGram, and Weight Watchers. Wednesday, February 26th, EP Energy Confirmation Hearing, PG&E again with a FEMA Cal OES claim hearing and a UCC formation meeting for McClatchy. There's earnings from Indo, Amnial, Tudor Perini, L Brands, and two names dear to me, Chesapeake and California Resources. Thursday, February 27th, on it goes, earnings from Clearway, Clear Channel, JC Pennies, AMC, Whiting, Comstock, and Natural Resource Partners. And Friday, February 28th, grace period expiration and foresight, early tender deadline for Hornbeck's exchange offer for its 20 and 21s, earnings from Vistra and Superior Energy and Intelsat, a popular name, there's an FCC open meeting. And that's it. Thank you, one and all. And now, here are Alex and Karen to discuss the Windstream Unity dispute over the master lease arrangement. Hi, and welcome. I'm Alex Brosman, legal analyst on the America's Core Credit team. I'm sitting here with my fellow colleague and legal analyst, Karen Lung, to discuss the Windstream bankruptcy and the key issue in the Chapter 11 cases, the Windstream debtors dispute with Unity Group over the party's master lease arrangement. This is a triple net lease under which Windstream makes a monthly cash payment to Unity of over $50 million in exchange for use of the leased assets, which include hundreds of thousands of root miles of copper wire and fiber optic cable networks. To be more precise about it, parent entity Windstream Holdings is the named tenant under the master lease agreement. Unity, a REIT, makes the leased assets available to Holdings under the lease, but it's Windstream Services, the operating subsidiary, that then uses the assets. The heart of the dispute between Windstream and Unity is whether this triangular master lease arrangement constitutes a true lease or a disguised financing. But before we get into that conversation, Karen, it's a week late, but I want to wish you a happy Valentine's Day. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate that. I mentioned where we are in the year because it was more or less on Valentine's Day that we received the opinion in Windstream's litigation with Aurelius Capital Management last year. That ruling from, Ju from Judge Jesse Furman of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York really precipitated Windstream's bankruptcy filing 10 days later. And now we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Chapter 11 filing on February 25th. The Windstream debtors initiated an adversary proceeding against Unity last July, setting forth their claims, including the core recharacterization claim, and Unity recently filed an answer and conditional counterclaims laying out the relief that Unity would ask for, in turn, if the bankruptcy court does determine that the master lease arrangement should be recharacterized as a financing. Thanks, Alex. I mean, what exactly does that mean, Windstream's request that the master lease arrangement should be recharacterized as a financing? Well, Windstream and Unity and other key case parties strongly disagree on the consequences that would result if the bankruptcy court does recharacterize the master lease arrangement as a financing. For now, as a starting point, we can describe it this way. Windstream argues that it, and not Unity, is the true owner of the leased assets. In Windstream's view, despite the terms used in the master lease agreement, it's not true that Unity owns these assets and leases them to Windstream under a true lease of real estate. Instead, Windstream says, when you look at the economic substance and circumstances of the relationship, it's Windstream that's the owner of these assets. 
Also, once the lease is recharacterized, the excessive rent payments would cease. Unity, of course, contests this, arguing that the master lease arrangement is a true lease of real property under the factors considered by the courts in a recharacterization analysis, such as the remaining useful life of the assets at the end of the lease. Unity also argues that Windstream has long represented that the master lease is a true lease and that the evidence will show that the company executives believed it to be a true lease until 2019. Among many other facets of the arguments, of course. And now we're fast approaching the beginning of the trial in bankruptcy court, scheduled to begin on March 3rd before Judge Robert Drain on Windstream's claim that the master lease arrangement should be recharacterized as a financing. In parallel with that, Windstream, Unity, and other key case parties have been engaged in settlement discussions in mediation, overseen by mediator Judge Shelley Chapman. Windstream has also released cleansing materials with restructuring proposals recently, uh, indicating that the parties would announce a resolution if they finalize one and stay the litigation by the end of February. So we're getting to a point where one way or another, the end is in sight for this dispute. Uh, and with that in mind, we'll focus our conversation today on the main arguments and pressure points in this fight. It's especially interesting because Judge Drain himself has remarked that he thinks uh, the disputed issues in the dispute, quote, are not slam dunk issues for anyone. And he's pointed out the absence of case law directly addressing the circumstances here as they relate to recharacterization. So let's go back a little bit and um, look at how we got here. In his opinion, last February, Judge Furman ruled the, that Windstream Services violated its indenture for the six and three eighths senior notes due 2023 by engaging in an impermissible sale and leaseback transaction through the, tw the 2015 spinoff of Unity. Aurelius made that argument in a notice of default sent to the company back in December 2017 and throughout the district court litigation. Windstream then filed for Chapter 11 less than two weeks later. Debtors' counsel from Kirkland and Ellis said at the first day hearing in the bankruptcy that Windstream had very strong operations, but the company had to file for Chapter 11 because Judge Furman's ruling resulted in a liquidity crunch and a freezing of the company's re uh, revolver. He also said that this company does not belong in Chapter 11 for an extended period of time. So we're almost one year into the Windstream bankruptcy, uh, like Alex mentioned. And one really striking aspect of the case is that, as the debtors have put it, the resolution of the dispute over the master lease arrangement with Unity is really a gating issue to formulating a restructuring plan. We've recently seen some of those restructuring proposals as exchanged by key case parties. You know, they're just proposals in cleansing materials released by Windstream. But many of the key questions in both pre-bankruptcy and post-petition litigation still remain unresolved a year into the case. People who have been following the Windstream and Unity situation for a while have now been watching the litigation over the nature of the master lease play out for years, both in district court, pre-petition, and now in bankruptcy court. Well, one thing to note is that Judge Drain has repeatedly urged the parties to settle, saying that it, quote, is clear to me that there's risks on all sides in the master lease litigation. The judge said that there's business risk and there's legal risk, and therefore there's every reason for the parties to reach a settlement. 
At the most recent hearing on February 12th, he even said that a settlement the parties can self-structure would quite possibly be better than a win in some respects for either party. So those are strong words from Judge Drain. Of course, it's not unusual for complex litigation to proceed in parallel tracks with the parties gearing up for trial on the one hand and engaging in attempts to reach a consensual resolution on the other. That's what we've seen here. And to be clear, the recharacterization claim is count one in Windstream's adversary complaint against Unity. The amended complaint also has three other counts, but Windstream and Unity have agreed to stay that litigation on those claims, while litigation on the core recharacterization claim moves forward to trial. By the way, Judge Drain has said that he's not going to delay the early March trial date unless there's an agreement in principle, at least. The parties in the master lease arrangement adversary proceeding have agreed to 60 minutes for opening arguments on each side and 10 hours to present evidence for each side. So let's return to one point you mentioned earlier, Alex, the triangular relationship between Unity, Windstream Holdings, and Windstream Services. It's a key issue in the case, and the structure of that relationship opened up a wide range of litigation outcomes, at least as asserted by the parties. Uh, some key questions are, if the master lease arrangement is recharacterized, should the leased assets return to services or holdings? And would Unity then hold a claim against services or holdings? All right, well, let me see if I can answer that. The triangular relationship between holdings, services, and Unity was a product of the 2015 spin-off transaction, as I mentioned before, that created Unity and established the master lease. The transaction was structured in three steps. First, Windstream Services spun off its copper wire and fiber optic cable networks to Unity, which was structured as a REIT for tax purposes. Uh, the agreed value of the assets transferred to Unity was um, $7.45 billion, with services receiving just over $1 billion in cash and $2.45 billion in face value of Unity debt securities in return. In the second step, Services distributed approximately 80% of the equity in Unity to its parent, Holdings. Step three, Windstream Holdings entered into the master lease agreement with Unity. The lease had an initial 15-year term with four five-year renewal periods. Under the lease, Windstream agreed to pay $650 million in annual rent to Unity with a 0.5% base rent escalator each year after the fourth year. So you see, Unity and Holdings are the parties to the master lease agreement, but it's services that actually uses the leased assets in a triangular relationship. And that triangle is significant because most of the sale leaseback transactions addressed in the case law on recharacterization have a bilateral structure, not a triangular structure. So to simplify this in everyday terms, you'll see cases where entity A, let's call it Alex, sells its assets to Entity B, me. I then lease the assets back to Alex. In the event of a successful recharacterization claim, the court declares that Alex, rather than being a quote-unquote tenant, is the true owner of the assets. I'm Alex's creditor with a claim secured on the leased assets, but I'm not the owner. So that's analogous to fact patterns you can see in some of the case law on the subject. And forgive us for kind of speaking broadly and glossing over some of the nuances in that comparison. But in these bilateral transactions, the original owner of the assets, that's Alex, is also the lessee under the lease. 
Here, Services was the original owner of the Assets pre-spinoff, but Holdings is the party to the lease. At a hearing on December 12th, Judge Drain asked about the triangular relationship in this case and said, I'm not aware of case law dealing with transactions like this. Counsel for both Unity and Windstream also acknowledged that the case law doesn't address this exact situation. So a lot turns on the evidence that the parties will be able to present at trial regarding the circumstances of the 2015 spinoff transaction and their arguments regarding how the court should assess that evidence, right? For example, Unity asserts that Windstream was advised that the master lease was required to be a true lease in order for Unity to qualify as a REIT and that Windstream therefore structured the transaction to achieve that result. Unity also says that Windstream represented that the master lease was a true lease that Windstream could only assume or reject in the event of a Windstream bankruptcy. And relying on those representations, Windstream's creditors and investors agreed to become Unity's initial creditors and investors, accepting Unity debt and equity in exchange for Windstream's. Here's another example. There's the issue of the remaining useful life of the leased assets. Windstream has argued that the advisor that engaged to opine on the remaining economic life of the telecommunications network, Ernst & Young, ahead of the spinoff, materially overstated the remaining useful life of the assets, suggesting that there's no remaining useful life at the end of the lease, and as a result, this isn't a true lease. On this point, Windstream has pointed to the economic obsolescence of the assets, particularly of the copper wire cables, which make up a significant portion of the value of the transfer networks. And Unity strongly disagrees on the remaining useful life factor. So where does that get us? What would be the result of recharacterization? Well, at the hearing in December, Windstream's counsel said that the debtors were not focused on the remedy at this time and didn't lay out in detail what the remedy would be. However, Windstream has argued that in the event of a recharacterization, it would no longer have to pay rent. And in the complaint, the debtors argue that uh, if recharacterized as what it is, a financing, Unity's resulting claim would be almost entirely unsecured and structurally subordinated. Similarly, in an opposition brief to Unity's summary judgment motion, uh, this was back in November, Windstream asserted that it will uh, ultimately show, when the time is right, that successful recharacterization will result in a finding that the assets transferred in the Unity spinoff, quote, never left services and or its subsidiaries in the first instance leaving Unity with a structurally subordinated claim at Windstream Holdings. So Windstream is suggesting in these filings that recharacterization would result in services owning the, the leased assets, with Unity holding only a subordinated, unsecured claim against Holdings. Obviously a really bad outcome for Unity. And as you might expect, Unity has strongly pushed back against that position in briefs and hearings in front of Judge Drain and in their answer and conditional counterclaims filed earlier this month. Unity has also argued that the Windstream debtors are effectively trying to void the sale of Windstream services and its subsidiaries' real property in the spinoff, leaving the transfer subsidiaries the owner of the network assets. And also that the debtors are attempting to grant Unity a claim against holdings only for the funds it paid to services in the spinoff. Unity calls this remedy an outrageous windfall for services that would effectively steal 
$7.45 billion in assets from Unity and its stakeholders and award them to Windstream and its creditors. In the conditional counterclaims that it filed earlier this month, Unity laid out the claims that it might assert against Windstream Holdings, Windstream Services, and more than 70 transfer subsidiaries, should it be necessary to do so. If the bankruptcy court concludes that the master lease is not a true lease and should instead be recharacterized as a financing arrangement. So in other words, Unity takes the conclusion as the starting point, then lays out a range of arguments that it might sue Windstream. So there are seven counterclaims uh, here asserted by Unity, and we won't explore them in too much detail, uh, but we will lay them out a little bit because they're one answer to the question of, so what if the court recharacterizes the master lease arrangement. And there are really a range of answers to that question. For example, Unity says that if the bankruptcy court determines that the master lease is not a true lease, Unity would then seek a declaratory judgment that the 2015 transfers of the leased property by the transferor subsidiaries to Unity constitute a true sale of the assets to Unity and that the master lease constitutes an installment sale by Unity to Holdings, and Unity has a claim against Holdings secured by a first priority lien on those assets. If the bankruptcy court determined that the leased property was never transferred from services and the transfer or subsidiaries to Unity, then Unity would assert a counterclaim seeking a declaratory judgment that Unity has a claim against services and the transfer or subsidiaries. Unity might also assert a counterclaim that the leased property is held in trust by services and those transfer subsidiaries for Unity's benefit and uh, would argue that uh, those that property is not part of the debtor's bankruptcy estates. Uh, we can go on uh, detailing Unity's additional counterclaim seeking a declaratory judgment that Unity has a perfected first priority lien on the leased property, uh, as well as for willful breach of contract under those sale and distribution agreements in the spinoff transaction that Alex described earlier, as well as fraudulent conveyance and unjust enrichment claims. But this does give you an idea of how Unity could respond in the event of an adverse ruling in the recharacterization dispute as an initial matter. Okay, we've been focusing on the positions of Windstream and Unity, but note that other key case parties have intervened in the adversary proceedings and they have important roles too. For example, the first lien ad hoc group, the ad hoc committee of second lien note holders, and the official committee of unsecured creditors, and also unsecured note trustees, UMB and, and U.S. Bank. Um, it's worth highlighting the, the position of the representatives of the over $1.1 billion in aggregate principal amount of the unsecured notes in particular. Chris Shore of White and Case, counsel to the unsecured notes trustees, said at the February 12th hearing that his clients have not attended a mediation session since November, they've not been invited, and have no idea about the state of settlement discussions. Shore also said that the unsecured notes trustees believe that the recharacterization claim and certainly the constructive fraudulent transfer claim are unleaned assets. Counsel for the unsecured creditors committee similar, similarly said, 
We have no idea what's happening today, arguing that the debtors are discussing the settlement of claims against unity that, quote, belong to us. And the day after that hearing, Windstream filed cleansing materials outlining uh, proposals from unity and the company, an illustrative plan term sheet from the debtors contemplating a $2.075 billion rights offering, among other things, and a Windstream business plan update. Additional disclosures came this past week, including what appeared to be revised plan term sheets from the first and second lien groups and a revised settlement term sheet from Unity. Windstream's counsel told the court at the last hearing where uh, we heard those remarks from the uh, representatives of the unsecured creditors that settlement discussions have accelerated. And based on the disclosures that are coming out, that certainly seems to be the case in this sprawling dispute. We'll be back soon, either monitoring the trial with you on March 3rd or reporting on a resolution. Back to you guys. Thank you both. And thank you for listening to another weekly review. As always, find all of our Reorg podcasts on the media page on reorg.com, plus iTunes and SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelding.